Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. It is my great honor to have the one and only Dr. Mark Yarhouse on Theology in the Raw today. Uh, Dr. Yarhouse is a professor of psychology at Wheaton College. He's also the director of Sexual and Gender Identity Institute at Wheaton College. He's the author of over 80 uh, peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters and the author or co-author of many books, including Understanding Sexual Identity, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, uh, sexual identity and faith, costly obedience, and many, many others. If anybody has done any kind of research in um, the question of uh, faith, sexuality, gender identity, especially looking into some of the uh, psychological questions that often come up, I've been a mentor either um, uh, formally or informally to so many of us that have wandered into this conversation. So it's a great honor to have my friend, Dr. Mark Yarhouse, on the show. So please welcome him to the show. Dr. Mark Yarhouse, uh, the the master Yoda of uh, the sexuality and gender conversation as it pertains to the evangelical Christian faith. Mark, I can't believe this is the first time you've been on the podcast. Uh, so anyway, it's it's this has been a long time coming, but thanks for coming on. Yeah, glad to do it. It's, I'm surprised we haven't connected either, but uh, glad glad to do so today. Well, there's been a few people where I'm like, you know, I'll wake up one day, I'm like, oh my word, I've never had that person on the podcast, even though I'm like close to them and friends with them and and run in similar circles. So I, th- I think you're you're one of those, the one that I'm like, I-, I can't believe I haven't had you on. So um, it hasn't been intentional for sure. I don't know if that's the first time you've been called the Master Yoda of uh, the <laughs> sexuality and gender uh, conversation. The first time, yeah, definitely yeah. the first. But time. I mean, you've been you've been in this space for a long time. Can you take us back to the beginning? Like, when did you get interested in? This conversation, it's been almost a couple of decades, right? Yeah. So it's been 25 years that I've been up and I've been teaching psychology um, as a as a professor. And actually, prior to that is when it occurred. So I was a graduate student and um, I was studying in at Wheaton College and I had a um, the department chair, Stan Jones, who's been a mentor to me for years. He invited me to be his research assistant. And it was such an honor to be asked. You know, I just said yes without knowing what we were going to even study. And so I come to the first meeting and he asked if I'd read anything that he'd written. I hadn't, it wasn't the worst interview you could imagine. It was just terrible. But he had like three lines of research and one of them was on sexual orientation. And he wanted in particular to look at how mainline churches were developing these sexuality task forces and they were reviewing scientific research and saying, here are the ethical conclusions we draw based on what we find in the in the research. So he wanted to look at the science. What does the science actually say? And then what's the logical relationship between the science and the ethical conclusions for the church's moral debate? And I had a philosophy background as well as psychology, and he thought I could sort of help him kind of think through that with him. So we worked on that, you know, probably for, you know, four or five years he became the provost, so the senior academic officer at Wheaton, and the level of administrative responsibilities just expanded such that he couldn't hmm. write and speak and, and do different conferences unless his research assistant did it. So I ended up doing a lot of things early, probably for the next four or five years. I graduate. I look around. There are no Christians in psychology writing about this these topics. And the Christians outside of psychology didn't seem to be familiar with all the research I'd been studying the last four or five years. So to me, it almost felt like a matter of stewardship. Like here I'd been given this mentoring relationship, this opportunity. What would I do with that? And I had other areas of interest, other reasons I went to graduate. I mean, this was not a topic that was of interest to me. I just was doing my work. Yeah. So in some ways, I think that kind of helped me be a little more dispassionate in some of the early conversations and you know, that served me well at the American Psychological Association, other places like that. The, the other thing I would say about that is that his, I think his his calling, and he and I've talked about this, has been a little bit more apologetics, like defending okay. um, orthodoxy, kind of that understanding. And I think mine, I had to find my own path. So I'd, let me tell you one more story about that. And then it, it was the first uh, APA conference I went to when I was starting as an assistant professor and I was listening to two gay psychologists talk about gay Christians who were leaving the leaving the gay community 
to go to Christian ministries that they said were harmful to them. And I, I thought, wow, what an interesting, like, research question. Are, the, are those ministries harmful to these gay Christians? And then he said, thinking the, the audience was mostly gay psychologists, he said, we are failing our people, by which he meant we're failing to meet needs for spirituality and the sacred. And so they leave the mainstream gay community to go find that in these ministries that are hurtful to them. And I, I just was really struck by that phrase, our people. And I realized later at lunch, I just had never heard a pastor, never heard somebody say from the pulpit, we're failing our people, by which the pastor would mean we're failing to meet needs for identity and community and significance. And people find that not in the church, they find that in the mainstream LGBTQ community. So I think a lot of my research ended up being a little bit more pastoral and like, how do you, how do you walk with people through what, what's the developmental journey? Like, how do you come alongside people? So it had a little bit of a different flavor. Um, Stan and I's views are very similar, but we just have had a different kind of lines of research. And I think that's been a big part of what early on was part of my career. What if your first projects, maybe it was your first, was that more academic study you did, the longitudinal study done on the effectiveness, I'm probably butchering the title, I'll let you correct it, but the effectiveness of sexual orientation change efforts. Um, was that your first kind of major project that you did or was that early? I know it was early on in your career. Um, yeah, it was right out of the start. It was something okay. that um, that Stan was the uh, principal investigator for, and he worked with me and a couple other people around the country to kind of um, be hubs where we could interview people. We did a lot of face-to-face -face interviews of people in in those ministries, and then it became mostly online interviews. People would move, and it was a seven-year longitudinal study, so it ended up being quite a... But it, it taught me a lot about doing research. I hadn't really, uh, apart from my dissertation, I hadn't really done a lot of research. Um, so to be able to work with him on that and see how you mm -hmm. set that up and move through your institutional review board and all the things that go into the ethics of it. It was really very instructive for me. I felt like once I had done that, I could probably do any, any other kind of research study. So. I mean, that that's a pretty heated part of the, I mean, this is a heated conversation in general, but that particular, you know, can people change their sexual orientation is one of the more heated points. What, what did you, what did you find in that, in that study? Well, it was a study that nobody, nobody liked. I mean, it was, it was, uh, <laughs> So I think on the one hand, on the because this was a very political discussion yeah. coming out of the 1990s into the early 2000s, and it was it was very heated conversation. I think when we published the study, there were kind of these two broad views in that heated exchange, and I think some of them were uh, kind of the skeptical pessimist who would say nobody has ever experienced any change whatsoever, and so any any um there was there was no way that you could have documented anything and so those folks weren't happy with the study because we did document some meaningful shifts for some people along a continuum and then on the other extreme were people who would say that anybody can change if they have enough faith if they put enough effort and so you yeah. can have this kind of 180 degree and we didn't show that either so it was like nobody liked the study because it just, and I think today we would frame it differently. You see, you know, you see people having demonstrated fluidity in sexuality, particularly among sexual minority females. And ours was just an outcome study. So we didn't really study the process. We know that they were in small groups, they were praying together, going through curriculum, studying God's word. But we didn't do a process study where you'd look at the variables that would predict an outcome. We just looked at the outcome. Did people experience change? For all I know, we demonstrated fluidity for people over time, or I think what was more likely, I think we demonstrated behavioral change and identity label usage and things like that. And some, possibly some underlying patterns of attraction for some people, but probably not as much as people wanted to claim it was, and more so than people said was even possible, because it had a lot of political stakes and demonstrating anything like that. But then later you have Lisa Diamond, other people yeah. saying, no, there is some fluidity documented here. And I think had we framed it more that way, okay. it would have been received differently. So, but I think, you know, still yeah. there's people who would say, and I, and I don't, so I don't know whether, or you, I mean, I know 
testimonies of people who would say their orientation has changed. I don't take anything away from that, but that's why you do research. Is it is it likely to be the next person's experience or how likely would that be? So. I mean, there's several uh, several problems I see, and, and this is not methodology and all this stuff that you are an expert in is not my expertise, but just looking on from the outside, it just uh, several questions come up. Like, what do we mean by change? Very big difference between somebody changing an identity. That can happen within a second. You know, I could say, you know, being a Dodger fan is part of my identity or being an American. I'll like wake up the next day and say, nah, I'm not, not for that team. Or, and that, you know, just the concept of identity can be really flexible and fluid and complex. So changing identity to me feels very different from someone's actual sexual orientation changing in a radical way, or even like, what about change from like, I used to lust a lot and now I don't. Well, that's different from I'm attracted to the same sex and now I'm not or sexual behavior that, that, you know, changing sexual behavior is, is a vastly different experience than again, your unwanted or, you know, unchosen attractions changing. Is, am I right to ask these questions? I mean, just the concept no, of yeah. change. Absolutely. So yeah. This, complex. yeah. So we, we included so many different measures because we didn't think we'd be criticized if you didn't use Kinsey, if you didn't use the Klein, mm-hmm. if you didn't use Shively and Decat. Like we had all these metrics. It was a long yeah. interview and uh, the packets that we used and everything. But I think what was clearer to me at time seven, at the end of the study, than it was at time three when we wrote the book, when we when we wrote an actual scientific article that was peer-reviewed and published, when we did that one, I think it was clearer to me because what had happened. Because the change that we recorded happened between time one and time two, and then was just maintained from time two to time six. I mean, it was like, so... So to me, and, and people kept saying, keep doing the study, keep interviewing, because people, the changes will come, the changes will come. Well, the changes were at the very beginning. And so I started to think, what happens at the very beginning of participating in a Christian ministry? Well, at the very beginning, if you were sexually active, you try not to be sexually active. Yeah. And at the very beginning, you're often told not to identify yourself with the mainstream identity labels that are used in the community. So you end up seeing those changes more well-documented. And I'm not saying again, that there couldn't have been any underlying patterns of attraction, but it didn't, the data didn't line up with that explanation as well as the idea of behavior and identity being the most, most obvious and the clearest examples of change early on that would then be maintained versus an underlying attraction, though that may have been than what happened for some people. And, and does self-report, I know that's part of just what we have to rely on, right, in studies, but I mean, that can be really sketchy, you know, like relying on self-report, especially, well, you, at least yours was longitudinal because some people are like, no, I know a person and he said he changed and I'm like, okay, well, I'd ask him in 15 years, I don't know. Or I mean, if you perform some more objective measures, would, would it line up with his self-report? Yeah, we, 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 I mean, we thought about that for a little bit, like, you know, would you do measures of arousal? But the way that those studies tend to be done is through, you know, showing people explicit images and then measuring that arousal. And so the ethics of that with a Christian sample whose own, you know, ethical conclusions would be that they not look at explicit images. So how could you justify it? So there, there were a lot of things that we were grappling with yeah. that were, again, good lessons for me as a young researcher. How do you even do studies like this? Um, but um, I think you had to rely on self-report for that kind of thing. Yeah, you're you're being pretty PG, but I've, I've read some stuff, I think by Michael Bailey and others, a secular psychologist who's done similar studies, where you can plug somebody into a machine and have them watch certain kinds of porn and actually measure blood flow and stuff that is going to be, would you say, more reliable than self-report? I mean, but again, uh, there's some obviously some major ethical questions with, with those methods. But um, I guess just to ask the million dollar question, I mean, in your opinion, based on your research, can people or do people change their sexual orientation? How, how would you, if someone asked you that, like, Mark, don't you think, can't God change people? You know, like, how would you respond? As I'm sure you've had to do many times to, to that question based on your research. Well, I mean, stepping away from being a researcher for a second, just being a Christian in this space. I mean, I've known people who have said that's my testimony. So Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, Christianity is a is a religion of testimonies. I mean, I don't like look at that and say that's not possible. It didn't happen. But you do research to say how likely is it to be the next person's experience? Because there's a sense of responsibility I think you have with that. And I'm less likely to say that that's a likely outcome for people. 
But I also respect Lisa Diamond's work. I respect demonstrating fluidity in this space. So the question is whether you can manipulate the outcome different means or whether it's a natural place of fluidity for some people. And I'm more comfortable with the natural fluidity. Manipulating the outcome, we've heard from a number of people how difficult that was or how shame producing that was. If it didn't produce the outcomes, how much that affected their faith, their relationship with God, the expectation of sanctification associated with it. There are all kinds of mm-hmm. all kinds of kind of unintended consequences of going down that path that I'd want to be just really it has raised a lot of concerns for me anyway have you seen that pretty extensively i mean, i've seen it anecdotally like lots of friends that i know that have been through some kind of reparative or conversion therapy i mean in everything you said the the damage to their faith the the shame the didn't help their sanctification kind of growth is that is, is that a pretty widespread maybe unintended consequence of these efforts yeah i think many people have reached that conclusion um so some of it's in research, but a lot of the design is convenient samples of people who are likely to be drawn to a study mm-hmm. to to make those statements. Okay. doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I don't know how likely it is to have. It's the likelihood that we're really talking about. Like in our study, we didn't really show harm. Now, the kinds of things people were doing, again, they were praying together, they were reading scripture together, they were in corporate worship together, going through a workbook together. And even the 2009 APA task force report, when it talked about, it was it was a report on the appropriate therapeutic responses to sexual orientation, and it was against sexual orientation change efforts, but it looked at these ministries and said, you know what, there's good things that come out of these ministries. There's a space here between the church where people don't always feel safe emotionally and spiritually to attend and not having anything. And so they find themselves in these parachurch kind of ministries and they find fellowship, they find social support. So there were some elements of that that were actually noted to be positive, which I was really surprised to see I you know documented there. But I think some studies have shown that, but a number of studies have shown the unintended consequences as well. And I think those are important to, to weigh in this conversation. Another question you've addressed, I mean, in several of your books, I believe, um, is the question of causation. Are 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 people with that are gay? Are they born gay? Um, is it nature? Is it nurture? What, what are your? What, I guess maybe just give us I mean, your own perspective, but also just maybe more of a global like where is the science at on that? I know there's been loads of studies done on causation. Um, can you give us a summary of where the data is on is on that? <laughs> Yeah, it's not take the rest of our podcast. <laughs> no, it's I mean, honestly, the short answer is we don't we don't know. I mean, it's, you know, probably the the last largest study that was done was just what, 2018 or so it was the half a million participants, the mm-hmm. genome study. And oh, yeah. Uh, I saw that. So it, it just it was showing five areas of, of um, that were suggestive, but they just weren't really showing. I mean, if you're looking for like a, a, a gene, I don't think you're going to see that. I think you're going to see markers that are suggestive. I think that is what we're seeing. Um, The way that I've often talked about it is that it seems that some people receive a push in this direction, but the push is not determinative like eye color or hair color. And so there have to be other things going on. What are those other things? Well, we don't really know what they are. So um, clinically, most of my my effort when I meet with like parents, especially because I work with a lot of Christian clients is helping them not feel the guilt like they did something that caused their child to be gay or they didn't do something or we should never have moved as much as we did or you shouldn't have worked so much outside the home or you shouldn't have all these different because we're meaning making creatures. And so parents will find meaning uh, even if there's no support for it to say, okay, at least this makes sense. Why our son, why our daughter? And so and they often go to ministries to get help and they often the fingers often pointed at them like they did something like because a lot of the theories in christian circles implicate the parents um so i do a fair amount now you know i i don't know what caused their loved one to be gay but i really don't think the parent did something or failed to do something and i think that taking that burden off the parents is actually the a good clinical pastoral use of not understanding really what causes sexual orientation to develop. So we can't reduce it all to 
biology nor all to environment it's not all nature nor is it all uh nurture some kind of complex blend of both um but there does seem to be in many if not most cases at least some kind of biological push is that that the right phrase to use i mean without saying there's like a certain gay gene or something yeah i mean it seems to be people's self-report of like earliest experiences of attraction at puberty not you know not not really having any say in that. I think, you know, one of the mistakes that we make in Christian circles still to this day is that we act like it's something the person chose, that chose to have these attractions or, and I, you know, apart from rare examples from radical feminism, there really just aren't documented examples of people saying that they chose to have these types of experiences um, so I, I usually look at the question more as what is volitional? Like, what does a person have say over? Of course, you have say over behavior and identity, and you can reinforce patterns of behavior throughout your life. But to say that you said, I'm going to set the course here to, to be gay through right. pursuit of these attractions. I'm going to, I'm going to create these attractions for the first. I mean, that that's just is a, is a really naive view of it. And I think it, it leads a lot of people to just, find the church to be so irrelevant to them because like, you are if you don't if you say that about me why would i trust you with anything else because i know that that that's not true i've often used the analogy i would love to hear your thoughts on it that you know just even if something isn't all biology doesn't mean it's therefore a choice for instance i wasn't i don't have i have nothing in my biology that has wired me to be an english speaker and yet i didn't wake up one day to choose to speak english over spanish or whatever these this is one hundred percent, my environment. There's nothing in my biology to be just, just you know, predisposed to speak English. So just because it has no biological roots, doesn't mean it has any anything to do with a choice on my part either. Like um, the whole nature nurture thing is a lot more complex than people make it out to be. Is that is that a good analogy to, to, to again showing the point that even if it's not bio total total biology, doesn't therefore mean it's kind of a raw choice. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's good. That's a good example. Yeah. Oh yeah. We have a slew of uh, <laughs> controversial stuff to talk about. I want to know about your, your, the posture you've taken. I mean, you, you're so, if anybody knows your work, they know that you have cultivated this extremely gracious, fair, kind posture in what is a very heated um conversation does that come naturally to you is there a story behind that like why have you really been committed to to taking that kind of approach to this contentious topic yeah i mean part of it i think is my temperament my my personality i'm i'm a, i'm uh, i actually don't like seek out conflict a lot of people think you must you know really like love controversy actually that's actually not people who know me know that that's actually not the case and as I mentioned, I didn't get into this with an axe to grind saying, I've, I've got to study this. I've got to defend. I've got to do this. I just, you know, happenstance or providentially, I was I was in a situation of being mentored in an area of research that had been neglected by Christians. And I felt like I should be a good steward of that. Um, so I think I entered into the conversation with a more dispassionate tone. I did research, and so I would present it. Research, you know, people sometimes expect an evangelical Christian to show up at APA with their Bible and like, <laughs> but I would come with, you know, my my PowerPoint slides and my findings and things like that. That doesn't mean everybody agree. I mean, I, there's plenty of people who would dismiss me at APA, or but coming with research and having a conversation about research certainly puts you in a better position to dialogue. And I and I have often been sought out dialogue partners either at APA or other venues, uh, just to talk through these things. Um, in large part, because of that early session I sat in on and some other relationships like that that were formed, I got to know people who were fairly prominent in the um, LGBTQ community as part of the APA. Um, and some are good dialogue partners mm-hmm. and some are not, just like Christians. Some are good dialogue partners within Christian communities and some you cannot dialogue with. They just would not um, have a, a healthy conversation with you. And that's the same, I think, across the board. So that that helped. Um, and I had, you know, my one of my person who hired me in my first academic position said, you know, I, I, I love the work you're doing. 
Uh, I'll I'll support you in that, but you have to make a decision. We can either kind of hide you in your office and you can kind of do your work quietly, or you can lean in and be a part of the the academy, a part of APA, you know, and be more visible in that way. And if you do, I will support you in that. And I'd kind of like, kind of, I I think that would be. I want you to you know think about that and pray about that. And I ended up going that route and you know being a part of different task forces, doing different consultations for you know, the National Institute of Corrections or other organizations that are secular, um, being active in APA in my division. So, but I think when you do that, you have to decide, are you going to come in looking yeah. for a fight? Are you going to come in trying to be, and I've made mistakes. Uh, so yeah. it's not like I've, <laughs> yeah. I've learned some valuable lessons, but then over the years, you have people who want to research with you, study with you. It's either part of their story mm-hmm. or it's someone close to them. So those relationships have deeply influenced me. Um, You read, you know, thousands of pages of transcripts of people that have been interviewed. You work with families over 25 years. I mean, it it does lend itself to being, I think, more pastoral, more, more, you know, therapeutic. You know, how do how do I walk with people in this space? And I think that just lines up pretty well with my temperament. I I think you've used. The, you know, said APA. I think most people know what that is, but the American Psychological Association, kind of the, is it the, what is it like the, the the biggest psychological organization in in the country? Is, is that the yeah, best way to yeah. describe it? Or and and not a particularly conservative group of people. <laughs> no, no. What's it? And you've been a part of it for a long time. What's that been like being an evangelical Christian in a space that I mean, are you the only one? One of the only evangelical Christians that's that's a part of that? And are you? well-respected or did people kind of look at you funny or what's that experience like? Yeah, it's mixed. I mean, there, there are definitely a lot of other Christians in APA and, but proportionally psychologists tend to be less religious than the general population among those who are religious fewer would be necessarily identified as Christians or evangelical for sure. There are definitely some, I mean, um, number of the integration programs, their faculty and their students are part of APA so when you think of integration doctoral programs like the one at Wheaton uh, or at Regent University or Fuller Theological Seminary, Rosemead, you know, George Fox, these different institutions are all active at APA. And they're um, developed programs that are accredited by the accrediting bodies there and things like that. So that's, I mean, it's a challenging space. Not many are in LGBTQ studies, and that's a whole other thing, but a lot of other Christians are really well-respected in APA, but there's not that many of them and they're not, um, you know, they have different, different lines of research and things that they do. I think for me, um, it's been mixed. I mean, some people really um, would denigrate me or anything that I would produce. They would be very skeptical of me because of that first study that I did, because I'm an evangelical, because I teach at a Christian college, those types of things would just be right out of the gate. We can't trust, you know, that, um, Others have been very positive. Even people that started off in a tense relationship have developed into good, um, good relationships. Uh, so, like when I've served on a, uh, a consensus panel from the American Psychological Association that gave input to SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, on care for LGBTQ youth. So I've done that a couple of times, and so to be invited into that is through relationships of people who at high levels are making those decisions and and they're looking for people who are subject matter experts in these areas. Who can we trust to be in a good faith dialogue about the science and its application to this population? So I'm not really brought in so much because of expertise in LGBTQ issues, but because of the intersection between conventional religiosity and LGBTQ issues. So the fact that I work with Christians in particular and navigating the intersection of people of faith like that's a that's an that's an underrepresented population in some ways in these conversations and i think that's sometimes why i get invited into that so those those would be very positive views of my work and okay um, but i wouldn't want you to think that it's always positive it's, oh, yeah. it's yeah. kind of a mixed bag yeah well yeah and again the fact that you're an evangelical christian in that space is one thing but the fact that you're dealing you, you know, extensively with sexuality and gender questions from a more evangelical perspective, I, I would, I can only guess that there's some people that would be pretty not excited about that. But um, I'm curious, I mean, so 
there, I'm sure there's some tense times you've had in that space, but then also on the other side of the aisle, <laughs> you know, there's been a, probably a lot of tense conversations and dialogues you've had from other evangelicals who don't, for whatever reason, don't like your approach. I would imagine you've received a lot of criticism over the years. How have you handled that? And what are some of the maybe critiques you've received? And and you still have your sanity, I think. I, don't, I should probably talk to your wife about that. But right. Well, I think I think people have been um, for the most extreme views on the on the in the Christian circles have been wanting me to just be a uh, echo chamber for reorientation efforts, those types of things. Cause I did do that study. So, you know, I get just, you know, criticized on the one hand for doing the study okay. on the other hand, not really landing in the way people want me to say things when I'm, when I'm looking at the data myself and saying, I'm, I don't think it says what you want it to say. And so I think you get, I get criticism on that end. That's died down a bit. That was hotter when I started my, you know, maybe, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, but I think the ex gay narrative has diminished some in our in yeah. even in Christian circles to some extent. But I think on the transgender conversation, I, I have viewed that differently than sexual orientation. I, I think gender identity is a different conversation than sexual orientation. I think it's different theologically in scripture. I think it's different from a scientific research standpoint, clinically. There's so many layers. And you know, we just we just say it, LGBTQ plus, but the differences there are significant. And I think sometimes people want me to say certain things about transgender experiences, particularly right now when things are so heated and so divisive in our society. People want me to land on say this, say that. And I don't say exactly what people want me to say. And I don't, I'm not meaning to do that. I'm just meaning to be honest about my answers because I've honestly, Preston, I've always seen people in that space. Even when I started my career, as rare as it seemed to be at the time, I would often see children and adolescents who were gender atypical. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them developed a, a sexual orientation identified as gay or bisexual, but others were dealing with gender identity issues. And so it's not like it's, even though it's, it feels like it's a new thing, in some ways there are some new elements to it. It hasn't been a new thing. It's always, it's been there throughout my career, it preceded me, it's going to, it's going to be far beyond you know my time here. Yeah, so let's let's transition to that then. Um, you entered into the gender conversation as an evangelical. I think your book uh, in 2015, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, what what way ahead of its time? I mean, it was only a few years ago, but I mean, this is now. There's a lot of secular writers that were you know in the yeah Bailey and Ann Lawrence and um, oh who am I Ken Zucker and other you know in the eighties and nineties doing research on gender dysphoria, but from a Christian perspective, your book is well ahead of its time. What led you to focus more on the T over the last several years? Yeah, it was youth ministers. It was youth oh. ministers. I was doing these, I was doing these like workshops for the national, uh, there's a national youth worker um, convention that was happening. And, and I would do these pre-conference workshops, five hours, maybe an hour and a half regular workshop all on, you know, sexual identity, sexual minorities, gay youth, things like that. And then about 2012, 2013, all of the questions were about gender. All of them were on transgender. And of course, I'd worked in that space, mm -hmm. not really done research in it, but had worked with people clinically. And I was really just struck. And I, I realized then, and I researched, I reached out to my editor and I said, I, I submitted a book manuscript and I said, this wave is going to crest on the evangelical church and we're not ready for this conversation. And so he, you know, he passed it around to his board when they make these decisions and they, they came back and they said, look, all of us know someone who's gay family, extended family, whatever, but none of us knows anybody who's transgender. Are you sure there's a readership for this book? <laughs> and it made, it does sound really funny today, given how, you know, the transgender tipping point, Laverne Cox, all of it, but uh, at the time, it was like, do we roll the dice? And I think they, I'd written for them before. I think they just said, let's give them a contract to kind of placate him. <laughs> so, and, but then, you know, the book actually is published the, the same month that Caitlyn Jenner transitioned is, is when it came out. It was so the timing of it was, was really uh, worked out really well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, since then, you know, I've published a couple other books in that area. I never thought, 
I would write a book in this area because it's, I mean, it was such a rare phenomenon early on in my career, never thought it would rise to the level of the kind of cultural salience that it, that it has today. And, you know, it's not, that first book was just to explain to evangelicals, what is gender dysphoria? What is transgender? What does this mean? And I didn't want the church to make some of the same mistakes they made around gay and lesbian issues by making hyperclaiming about causal theories, hyperclaiming about change. And I wanted the church to sort of respond to this with a little more nuance. And that's kind of what, what led to that book. Does the Bible support same-sex marriage? That's a question that many people are wrestling with today. And there's, you know, people who hold passionately to different answers to this question. Now, most dialogues about same-sex marriage, they end with divisiveness and confusion instead of clarity and a better understanding of the other person's position and even a better understanding of your own position. This is why I wrote a book titled, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? 21 Conversations from a Historically Christian Perspective, which comes out uh, in August uh, this summer. So what I do in this book is I first talk about how Christians should even go about having you know, a profitable conversation about contentious issues. I really want us to cultivate a better posture in how we even go about defending our points of view or trying to refute others. I then lay out a biblical and theological case for the historically Christian view of marriage. And then for the rest of the book, I take what I see as the top 21 arguments for same-sex marriage, and I respond to each one in a way that's both thoughtful and thorough. Some of these arguments are, you know, since some people are born gay, then God must allow for same-sex marriage. Or, you know, the word homosexual was only recently added to the Bible. Or the traditional view of marriage is harmful to gay and lesbian people. And, and many other arguments that I wrestle with in this book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? So if you're looking for a theologically precise and nuanced approach to these arguments, one that doesn't, you know, straw man the other view to make it look bad, then I would encourage you to please check out my book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? You can order it now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. What are some of the big picture differences between LGB and T and some of the, you know, because you've said a few times, you know, there's just a lot of more complexity here that people don't understand. What what are some of those things that people should understand about the T? Yeah, I mean, just the the basics between sexual identity conversations are about how you identify yourself based on your sexual attractions or orientation. So someone says they're gay or they're lesbian or straight for that matter. They're using sexual identity categories. Gender identity is your experience of yourself as a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, or a different experience than that. And that brings you into the transgender conversation. Does my gender identity correspond with my biological markers or is it different than that? And so that's that's the biggest difference just to get out of the right out of the starting point. But then I think, and this is obviously also contested, but I think scripture is clearer about sexual behavior. I don't think scripture really addresses gender identity in the way, I mean, I think it assumes it, but it doesn't really speak to it in the same way. Um, that doesn't mean, I mean, people respond to that with, okay, that anything goes. I'm not saying anything goes, yeah. but it just means we have to do a little bit more, you know, a little more thought about that then if scripture doesn't directly address something. So I think those pieces, um, I think it's, you know, when you think of someone saying, well, maybe my attractions don't change, but I could be chased in, in as a single person, that would mean pursuing celibacy. Well, we can look at that. How, how, how is that for people who go down that path? But I do think it's, those are achievable things. I mean, I think people can be, people can refrain from sexual behaviors, difficult as that may be. What's the equivalent around the gender question? What, what is permissible for Christians? What's impermissible? Um, what guidance do we get from scripture? I think those are just more complex questions. And so much of our, the way people present themselves is through clothing and hairstyle, things that are definitely culturally yeah. situated. Um, do we want to make universal claims about hair length, about the, the clothing we wear in one society? I mean, what, what becomes morally problematic? I think I've always struggled with where's the, where's the line exactly for people in this space? Yeah. And, so anyway, that those I think those are some important differences. I agree, and I, I some people get troubled when I say exactly what you said that there is more clarity 
I think in scripture when it comes to what are the created boundaries for sexual expression and relationships. Um, I think we have a, again, people debate this obviously, but I think we have a fairly clear definition of marriage, maybe not definition, but I mean, you know, it seems that when marriage is talked about sex differences is part of the biblical expression of what marriage is. Um, there's passages that talk about, you know, uh, purposes of marriage themes, you know, certain sexual expressions that are out of bounds. You know, so we have those kind of like just just actual verses, you know, that are addressing directly the questions we're asking. Whereas with gender, it's just, it's a, it's a lot more complicated. I I've often said that I think that where the theological discussion needs to be have had, it has to do with like a theology of the body or mm-hmm. um, themes surrounding just theological anthropology, your colleague, Mark Cortez, done some great, great work there. And, and so it's more of these broader theological themes that that I think do give us a, a, give us probably more the, a a stronger theological foundation than some people might give credit to, but it's just, yeah, I, I, I'm very happy to say there, there is less, not no clarity. Just God hasn't, God's given us guidance, but it's just, it's, does it's not of the kind of real chapter verse explicit sort that we have in, in sexuality. What So gender dysphoria in particular, can you just describe maybe, yeah, again, kind of a one-on-one foundation. What is that? And I'm, I'm ultimately, I ultimately want to get to like the, the nitty gritty questions surrounding how do we uh, uh, alleviate gender dysphoria? Are, are there certain people that psychotherapy is just not going to do anything for them? Or have we not explored those avenues as far as we should? Is transitioning, aside from the moral question, um, is that an effective means to address gender dysphoria? Now, each one of these questions, I know it's <laughs> debated and complex, but that's that's why we brought you on. <laughs> yeah. So gender dysphoria is, um, so if you think of euphoria as a positive emotional state, dysphoria is a negative emotional state. And it's associated with when you're experience of your gender identity doesn't correspond with your biological markers. So for the majority of people, your experience of yourself as a man or as a woman corresponds with biological markers like chromosomes, gonads, genitalia. But for a percentage of people, there's a discordance there. And when that discordance is painful for them, we call it gender dysphoria. And that pain can be mild, can be moderate, can be severe. So if I had 10 people in front of us, you could have 10 different levels of severity of dysphoria from mild to severe. And if you had one person in front of you and they had dysphoria throughout their lifetime, you could have different levels at different times. Mm -hmm. And so people kind of intuitively try different things in a kind of a stepwise fashion to see if it helps. And the things that people generally gravitate towards to help are things like wearing clothing that expresses something that they experience inside, or they do their hairstyle shorter for a natal biological female or biological male might wear his hair longer or wear light makeup. And, you know, again, they have to ask, okay, is that, I mean, we let people do that, like hair their hair or wherever, however they want. And it's not typically a moral issue, but what if it's actually helpful for them. It, it alleviates distress. Is that okay? And that, that brings you to the question of on a continuum of efforts. And I usually think least invasive, you know, hairstyle to most invasive surgical interventions, you know, and I, and I, what I would argue is the way that our culture sometimes talks about and presents people who are transgender in social media, entertainment, we almost treat it like a mountaintop experience that everybody moves towards medical interventions. And it, it almost becomes this uh, yeah, mountaintop experience that everybody should sort of hike towards. And the reality appears to be that most adults plateau at some point short of any of those mountaintops. If you think of one mountaintop as, you know, cross-sex hormone treatment, another one is gender surgeries. Many people seem to plateau at other places. And I'm basing this on couple of studies that have been done with adults where they've asked them about this and they've, you know, only, um, you know, like I think it was 44% of adults reported using hormone treatment in the U.S. transgender survey that was done in 2015. 25% used any gender confirmation surgeries. The Kaiser Family Foundation just put out a study maybe two months ago. Hmm. It's much smaller, like 500 adults. 
but it was even smaller percentages who used hormones or who used surgeries. Now, we don't always know why, or you know, it could be that they don't have good, adequate coverage, and they would if they had better health insurance. Could be the cost, could be concerned about the long-term side effects. There's a lot of those things to look at. But I wouldn't want us to talk to people as though it's a foregone conclusion that everybody does those things. It's just not the case. Those percentages are small. I mean, I knew it wasn't, I knew it was smaller than what people would expect, but those, those are lower than, than I would even expect. 44% in that one study pursued some kind of hormone therapy. Yeah. I would have, if you just asked me to guess, I would have said like 70, 80% or something. Yeah. And the Kaiser one, I think it was even lower. It was like 31%, something like that with hormones and maybe like 16% with surgeries. So I'm not sure we're always getting the most representative samples yeah. that's hard to get at. And then what would people do if they had the option, if they don't have the option? But I just think, you know, if we if we continue to talk about it as a foregone conclusion, I, I just don't think it captures the landscape right now. And I think giving people more options along that continuum is probably wise. And I think for Christians, especially, I think we struggle with what is okay to do in that space maybe more than other. Do you find that, you know, like, so when the sexual orientation conversation, you know, we've learned that it can be kind of problematic to try to identify like something in your past that might've caused this or whatever. I found that with gender dysphoria though, there is a, and I guess this is, a, I'm, I'm going to state it like a statement as if I know what I'm talking about, but I would love your <laughs> critique or pushback or correction. It seems to me like there is a, at least a higher percentage of people that, if they experience gender dysphoria, they're sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, there there are past traumatic episodes or you know things that, again, if they work through, um, that gender dysphoria might be linked to. And if they work through something they haven't worked through, it actually reduces dysphoria. There was one, a study on online study. It wasn't peer reviewed, so I don't want to you know bolster it, but it was a study of over two hundred biological females that experience gender dysphoria. And one of the questions was, you know, what are, what are some things you do that helps mitigate or alleviate, reduce your dysphoria? And the number one response, I think 88% said dealing with internalized misogyny. Um, hmm. So there's something in their environmental, maybe a, a domineering father, you know, it almost sounds like you're going back to the kind of ex-gay narrative, but it could be, you know, in their environment, being a woman was seen as bad and low and, and shameful. And then that, when they looked at their female body, it was, it kind of exacerbated this, like, ah, I don't like this because I'm being told that being a woman is not a good thing. Is that, is that an accurate perception that gender dysphoria does have a higher percentage of possible connections to th life experiences than what we found to be in sexual orientation over the years? Well, certainly some studies are showing that. Again, I'm not sure that they're representative studies. They're not all well-designed. They're often convenient samples. But there are correlational studies like the one you're describing. I'm not sure exactly that study, but there are other studies that have correlates like that. There was even a study that I think I cited in my book about parents wanting to have a child of one oh, gender, wow. a child of the other gender. It was it was correlated with later dysphoria. I just I think the the mistake I want to help Christians avoid is hyperclaiming a theory of causation. Okay, as though we're certain it's that. Now you did a good job of setting that up. Like that's not what we're saying here. But there are suggestive correlates that say we should probably study this some more. We should look into this more. We should do better design studies to look at that. I think that's a great idea. I don't know if they'll be done or if they'll be funded, those types of things, but I think it's a good idea. Um, so we should avoid hyperclaiming theories of causation. And I think we should avoid hyperclaiming theories of resolution that, like, let's say there is trauma in their history. And I've known a number of people with trauma histories in this space for sure. I wouldn't say the trauma caused this, but I would look at that with them. I don't know. I don't know what caused this, but okay. But then I would also treat the negative sequelae from that trauma. But I wouldn't say that if I did that, this would all resolve. I would just say it's good to do that. Like that's a good thing to do. It's always good to deal with undealt with trauma in the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a it's probably a good reason to slow down if they're saying I want to make these jumps in medical interventions and those types of things. I mean, there are some reasons, I think, why some people should slow down in that decision. Now, I, I don't, you know, we're not in a place of mental health professionals functioning as, as gatekeepers for adults in this space the way 
that um, they have in the past. But I think for people to look at that, look at those, like even like autism spectrum disorder has a, yeah. is correlating with gender dysphoria. So we've been encouraged to assess for that and to ad- and to address that. And so you always try to look at these co-occurring issues and say, okay, have we adequately addressed these other issues before you jump into things that would be really dramatically life-changing? Um, so obviously it's more contentious with minors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I started my career, generally, if you saw a minor, you know, you help them as best you could. You help their family, their parents respond, but you sort of saw them going to adulthood, then you'd refer them to an adult gender clinic. There, there really wasn't as much emphasis on what do you do at 13 or 14, these newer interventions of blocking and uh, transitioning and things like that really weren't there in the U.S. when I started my career. So. Okay, you brought up youth culture. In my in my experience, it just seems when people ask me, a, you know, kind of a broad brush, you know, the transgender conversation, I almost want early on in that conversation to say, okay, are we talking about like youth culture or are you talking about like the broader, you know, gender dysphoria, adults who, you know, have tried everything to alleviate their dysphoria, they end up transitioning and, and you know, living that way or whatever. But like there has been an explosion, right, of, of youth, especially natal females identifying as trans Um I get, yeah, there's so many questions I have. The The question of, is there social influence here? To me, it just seems like an obvious yes, not in every case or whatever. And that, you do know, anytime we talk about society influencing that, that's a complex conversation, okay? But to say that there is no social influence in the rapid rise in people identifying, to me, it just doesn't seem scientifically valid am i right to assume that and i know we have to be very careful about how we go about this and i don't want to i don't want parents to like walk away saying see i knew it my kid was just chasing some trend or like no 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 no. i don't know your kid i'm not saying that at all but from a scientific perspective do you feel like there is social influence in the rise of teens identifying yeah unfortunately in our in our in u.s culture right now we politicize everything yeah. and so everything becomes this it's this or this yeah and we polarize around it. So right now, I would say the two polarizing positions would be, this is just self-awareness. People just are aware they were always there. They didn't have the language for it, the social support for it, but this is who they are. They always were that way. And I think that's definitely true. That does account for some rise, no doubt. Um, But to say that's all that's going on, I think is naive. The only other explanation that's really on the table is social contagion. So it's just this virus that's being passed along between peers. And what people are doing there is that's a little bit more well-documented. It comes out of the eating disorder literature. It's more well-documented as a phenomenon um, where um, eating disorders can, people can um, struggle more with body weight, shape and size, body image. And those messages are communicated in a society about standards of attractiveness and so on and so forth. And the adolescent females tend to be more susceptible to that than adolescent males. And it can lead to and maintain eating disorders at higher rates for adolescent females. So some people have kind of copied and pasted that over to this conversation and said, that's what's going on here. So I'm not prepared to say that because it's not as well-researched, but I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, I don't tend to use that phrase right now because we're very polarized. Um, It's one or the other. I do think there are societal influences, some peer group influences. I would locate that in a larger explanation of what's going on. So I write about that in a book called Emerging Gender Identities that I wrote with Dr. Julia Sadusky. And it's, it has to do with what's called a looping effect, but it has to do with how in society people respond to the categories that they're that are used to categorize them. And so one of the main ways we categorize people in our society today is diagnostic labels. And so when we use a, even a label like gender identity disorder, you would have thought about yourself differently if you were given that diagnosis than if you're given the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, because the one says I have a fundamental identity problem that I need to address. The other one says I have distress and I need to alleviate that. Mm-hmm. So even that way of categorizing would lead you to think about yourself differently. And you as a group of people who have this experience would think about yourself as a people group differently. So anyway, we walk through kind of how that happens for people in this space. And I do think peer group influence is a part of that conversation, but it wouldn't be 
the only thing. And I think that's part of what social contagion maybe gets wrong is that it it reduces it to nothing but this, just like self-awareness reduces it to nothing but this. I think it's a more complex um, understanding of what's going on, but definitely younger people today. Yeah. You know, the book gender emerging gender identities is so different than understanding gender dysphoria because (laughs) one was explaining the phenomenon of transgender experiences. The other one's like, what's going on in the last five years? Like, why are we seeing this rise and what do we do about it? Um, Younger people are exposed to a much wider array of gender possibilities than you and I ever would have experienced growing up. If you're 14 today, you have so much more exposure to different linguistic constructs than their parents or their grandparents ever would have even imagined around gender. So it's very difficult to then minister to, care for someone whose exposure to language and categories is so different than your own. Uh, that splintering of gender categories is uh, is really unheard of and, and and should be of some concern, I think, to Christians. That's super helpful. And I, I have, I've actually tried to, I mean, you and I both, and I've learned this from you, you know, language is so important. Like, can we, can we use for, use the best, most accurate phrase that has the least possible stigmatization, stigmatization, stigmatizing people or, or shaming people and so even the phrase social contagion and and i used it in my in my book um i think i did i've tried to use it less and less like do i need to use that because it does have this kind of like disease kind of negative connotation like can we talk about peer influence social influence is that kind of communicating the same question where social contagion just kind of has a little bit of a sting to it my question i noticed in your book with julia you avoided that term. Is that on purpose? I think I'm pretty sure I, I, I like they never use the phrase social contagion. And I know you guys are very, very careful with language. Yeah, I think we're careful. To, I mean, we name it to name the issue because uh, it's right. a very common explanation. I think we should be conversant as Christians that that is on the table, just like self-awareness is on the table. What do both of those proponents get right? What are they getting right that they're observing? And then where are the gaps? Because right now we're so polarized. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're polarized, you can almost put money on it that neither one explanation is is it. There's probably something else going on that carries some elements of both of those polarized views. Um, You know, these are thoughtful people in both of those camps, but they're they're doubling down on this is the only account. This is what's going on. And I think when you do that, you you get into politics and not really helping people at that point. I just I feel like the people that say there is zero social influence, this is all self-awareness, they have that has to be in the minority, right? I mean, I, I just think that most people are like, no, hum- teenagers are impressionable, the numbers are way too high. It has to be more than just only self-awareness, and there is a in many, especially more progressive cities, for lack of better terms, a, a glamorizing of of you know sexual and ge- and gender minority identities. Um, you know when I when I go speak in like Iowa, you know they'll they'll have some trans kids in youth group, and then I go to like Seattle. Well, I just I was at a church, you know, several different churches in the last couple of years, and it's like there's so many LGBT kids in the youth. They're almost asking the question, like, how do we reach the straight kid that, you know, we have a couple straight kids coming to youth group, you know, like uh, it's, it's almost like, it's just like, I don't know for someone to say, Oh yeah, no, that's, that's the, they've always been there. Um, or, or my, you know, my, my daughter is in a theater class and like of the 15 kids, 13 in Boise, Idaho, which is one of the more conservative cities in America, 13 of the 15 girls in the theater class went by they, them, or he, she, they, like nobody had just, pronouns that match your biological sex like am i really is that no social influence like to me it just doesn't sound like reasonable to say there is no social influence am i right to say that that really is kind of a minority maybe loud but most people don't hard for me because the 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 waters i that i swim in are in the community of of mental health professionals who view it that way so that that is the i would say that's the overarching view in LGBTQ circles that I'm a part of it at, at, at in mental health societies. But if you got them in a private room with no tape recorder, maybe a couple beers, like would they really say, "Yep, yeah, there's no, yeah, 13 of the 15 kids in that youth." Well, that's have- an interesting. That's an interesting qual- qualifier there because I think I think part of 
holding on to certain positions can be fear-based on both sides. Sure. Because you're trying to protect kids you think are vulnerable. And both groups are doing it. Both groups want to protect kids. And so if you're self-awareness only and you concede social influence, will people be dismissive of the actual kids who need to be protected? I think there's I think there's that in the circles, secular circles I'm in. In the social contagion circles, I think there's also a fear that our kids are young and impressionable. They're being influenced by an agenda or ways that it's been portrayed in social media and entertainment. So we need to protect them as well. So I think both groups are trying to protect kids, sure. but so those are good impulses, but I, they can't both be right, or they're they're both contributing something right to a more complex whole. Yeah, I have one, one more question, Mark. It might it might not be a short answer, but th- this is a I mean this is the most genuine question I could possibly ask because it's a question I get all the time, and I don't have a good answer. The parent that comes to me, and there's been many, and I know I'm almost going to assume you've had probably ten times more than I've had parent comes to you saying, you know, they had that kind of deer in the headlights look saying, you know, my 13, 14, 15 year old, typically it's going to be a a female, uh, you know, daughter came home, told me they're trans, they're demanding I use they, them pronouns or opposite, opposite sex pronouns. They're maybe even demanding that I not just like use the pronouns, but actually believe certain things that, you know, I am a boy, even though they're biologically female. Maybe they're even demanding hormones. Like I need, I need hormones now. And if the parent does anything but full affirmation, they feel like I'm going to lose this relationship because my kid's being told that if a parent doesn't affirm you, then they're toxic. They're probably going to increase your suicide, suicidality. What do you say to that parent that isn't wanting to give blockers to their 13, 14 year old kid who may, may even be nervous about using pronouns that chosen pronouns with a younger teen at that age, what's the, have you, I would love to hear if you've encountered this scenario and how do you respond? What's your advice? Yeah. So definitely see a lot of parents, a lot of families like this. Um, We do have a, we do have an outward facing clinic uh, connected to the work we do here where we evaluate people and evaluate for gender dysphoria. And most people who come to see us want to know, is this gender dysphoria? Are there other things going on like co-occurring depression, autism spectrum disorder, things like that? Where do we go from here? What do you recommend? And then how do we improve family relationships if they've been strained because of this whole process? Those are probably the four leading reasons people come to see us or some combination of that. So to a parent, you know, part of me says, let's let's see if this is gender dysphoria or not, because because it could be right. I mean, it's probably not in every case, but it could be in this case. So a good, careful evaluation of that would be warranted. Are there other things going on? You and I talked about trauma earlier. We mentioned, I mentioned autism spectrum disorder, depressive disorder. The guidelines that we have are to make sure that those things are well managed before people make other decisions around this. Um, So kind of develop a bit of a plan here. Certainly, if you think there's entertainment, social media, peer group influence, we'd want to slow down and look at that. How is that affecting this experience? Um, If parents, you know, have their own genuine, you know, skepticism about this, then I think you need to slow down and look at this together very carefully. So I think those are some things that you can do. I think you could review the data on what leads to people having a harder time with this. I'm thinking here of like Caitlin Ryan's work. Um, You know, she has a list of like accepting behaviors and rejecting behaviors. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of her data and having spoken with her about this is that the thing you really have to avoid is the rejecting behaviors. So those are things like physical altercations, verbal abuse, spiritual abuse, you know, things of that nature. That's what put ki- puts kids at risk for self-harm or suicidal ideation and intent and things like homelessness. And most Christian parents that I see, vast majority would say, of course, absolutely, that's off the table. We're not going to, you know, that's a self-selected group who come to see a mental health professional. I'm sure there's others who, who, who do those behaviors. And then there's accepting behaviors, but the accepting behaviors are not associated with those outcomes in the same way. Like parents don't have to do X, Y, and Z to keep their kid from certain outcome that it does that does not appear to be from her from my understanding of her data as 
as important as avoiding the rejecting behaviors, getting those out of your of oh, what's happening. Okay. So, so I think being able to review that, being able to now at the same time, if there is genuine dysphoria, and certain things help mitigate that, then we look at should we consider doing those things? What have you already tried? I mean, every 14, 15, 16 year old that comes to my office has already tried things. Mm. You can tell by the way they dress. You can tell by their hairstyle. You can tell by a lot of things that they do that are completely reversible. They try things out to see if it helps them or not. And then you can look, do we, is that a plateau? Could we plateau there? Or do we need to look at another plateau? Now they might be thinking mountaintop, but I'm teaching a little bit about that analogy. One of my colleagues uses a different analogy. It's not a mountaintop and plateau, but it's a it's a train. That, and, and she says, if I give you the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, I don't want you to think it's a gender train that you get on. And the only stop is at the end is medical interventions. There are a lot of stops along the way for people to manage this. And that's the plateaus, right? So we're just using different metaphor there. But so then we, then we try to work with that family on where could you plateau? What what's a, And a plateau could last for six weeks, six months, six years. You, know, you just don't know. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's super. I feel like I owe you whatever your clinical rate is for that advice. That's, <laughs> um, yeah, that's really helpful. And those, I think the parent-child relationships for me are always as a parent with four kids. Like oh, yeah. it's, sure, man, my heart just goes out, and I, I, I wish I had a better kind of. And you know, they look at you like, fix it. Like, what's the what what's the magic bullet here? I'm like, relationships, especially parent-child, especially parent-trans-child relationships can don't have that quick fix. But Mark, I've taken you past the hour. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much for all of your <laughs> steady devotion to this topic. I mean, your books have been immensely helpful for all of us in this area, especially from for me. So thank you so much for your work and your time. I appreciate it, Preston. Thanks for this time together. Show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.